What the hell's the name of this thing? The Ballsy Podcast. Hosted by the award-winning Evan Grant. This has been the most tense podcast I have ever done. Kevin Sherrington. Do we want to compare bylines? How many? Barry Horn. We're supposed to keep this thing moving, be fresh. Get ready for the most listened-to sports podcast in Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Evan Grant, and this is Ballsy. I'm Kevin Sherrington, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Mavericks. And I'm Barry Horn. To hear our other exciting additions, simply subscribe to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. You know we're on Facebook and Twitter, too. Just search Ballsy Podcast. That's Ballsy with a Z. So sit back, relax, that's relax with an X, and enjoy another edition of Ballsy with a Z Podcast. Welcome back to Ballsy. Is this our first podcast of the new year? No, no, no we, we worked last, last week. You know, and you're the youngest guy in the group, and you've already forgotten. My New Year's was last night. Uh, oh. I'm sorry it went so poorly for you. It didn't go poorly. We'll get to that. But my New Year's is picking up. You know why? Why is that? It's not my, my new year is picking up, not years. Yeah. My new year is picking up because right now Mark Folliwell noted Authority on college football, noted Rangers fan, sometimes Mavericks announcer, is on the phone with us. <laughs> sometimes. Good morning. Hello. Uh, oh, was that the proper? Was that the proper introduction, or did I sell you short a little bit? Oh man, you did great. I give it a, a total thumbs up. Uh, Variety magazine says Buffo four stars for your intro. <laughs> so, thank you very much. So you, you've got the base down this morning too, don't you? Well, it's a dreary day outside, you know, kind of down. It's foggy this morning. I, uh, before you guys called, I just saw that there's not even any planes taking off right now at DFW because of a ground stop because the fog's so bad. So it probably has me, uh, you know, a little down today. I'm, I'm very subdued this morning as I look out on this gloomy morning when I speak to you here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Are you a Georgia fan? Is that why it's so gloomy for you? No, I enjoyed the game. I mean, I, I thought it was a fantastic game. I love the competition. And... Um, for Evan's sake, it would have been great to see them win because I know how happy he would have been and uh, you know, it would have been their first title in three-plus decades where it's the fifth and nine years for Alabama. Um, you know, and, and it also would have been very impressive that Georgia would have won because they would have won a shootout last week and then they would have won a very intense physical slugfest last night. So I think that would have been a really true champion that would have spoken to the ability to play different kinds of games and adapt to whatever you had to adapt to based on the opponent and style of play and talent level and pace of game and all that sort of thing. So it would have been a very, very impressive national championship had Georgia won it, but they did not. And, by the way, it's also an impressive championship that Alabama won because a lot of people thought they didn't even deserve to be there in the first place. <laughs> but that Absolutely. happens all the time. Ohio State did that, too. You know, yeah. no, no one thought they should be there, and they, and they won it. I, I hate it when the coaches are, are, are born out right on the CFP. You know, they, they, uh, they're, they're always right. You know, we, we complain about the, the, the picks that they make, and then their picks are the ones that, uh, that win the title. So. I didn't have a problem with the fact that they put Alabama in, mainly because, if nothing else, it spoke to the fact that winning and losing is still a very, very important thing in college football. And they only lost once. And, yes, Ohio State was a conference champion, but they were a team that lost twice. Which so. brings me to the point of my two favorite tweets of the morning. Uh, there was one <laughs> from a noted person. The president? Uh, no, not the president. Oh, okay. Um, is this said, is from somebody who knows the national anthem? Uh, it might be. Um, but uh, 
Da, 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 da. What was the first one was um, congrats to Nick Saban, Alabama, for finally winning a game the Tide should have won more easily. <laughs> oh, who's that? Who wrote that? The second one was, and this is the segue back to what we were just I talking about. think it was about. Urban Meyer, wasn't it? I still don't believe Alabama belonged in these playoffs. To which I responded, well, Skip, I still don't believe you belong on TV. <laughs> wow. But everybody's got to deal Damn. with it. Um, Man, don't be so hard on Skip. I, I, listen, he's a joke, but Alabama is not. And they belonged in the playoffs. And when you go out and you win, you shut out the defending national champions, and then you beat the team that just had a shootout with Clemson, come back Oklahoma. with a freshman quarterback, I mean Oklahoma, with a freshman quarterback in the second half, make an incredible, gutsy, nutty personnel change. Who else would have done that? Is there any other coach that would have done that? I, you know what? Other coaches, that's, that's a great point because I, I think I a don't lot know of. How, how many coaches would have been secure enough to do that? Well, that's that's what it yeah, is. Yeah. Coaches would say, every, they would all be worrying, oh my gosh, what is everybody going to say tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And I lose this thing because I put in a guy who hasn't even hardly played all year long. Now, I will say this I thought Jalen Hurts was going to cost them the national championship. But the week before, <laughs> you know, I thought that there was there was no way they would beat Clemson with Jalen Hurts because he's a one dimensional quarterback. Yeah. He really can't throw the ball at all. Uh, he, he's he's very smart and he doesn't turn it over and he and uh, and he runs well, obviously. But you know, Georgia's got a good defense, and once you key on on him and make sure that he does not run, which they did and did very well, then then Alabama's offense was going nowhere in that game, and he made the call. And I got to tell you. When I looked out there in the second half, I thought, who is this guy? That's not Hurts. You know, I didn't even know who he was. Because he was left-handed. Right. Well, yeah. And, and he I, could swing it. Oh, my hurt. gosh. I tell you what, watching him throw Great the arm. ball, he looks to me, and, you know, I'm no expert about this kind of stuff, but he <laughs> looks so good standing there looking over the field. He doesn't look like he's panicking. You know, a lot of quarterbacks get those happy feet. He's bouncing on his feet. But, he, but he's very, very cool. And and just even, even my, my – my 19-year-old daughter, who knows nothing about football, I, I oh, said... It goes in the family. I said, he looks just so calm. And she goes, yeah, that's the thing that I was noticing. Nothing seems to bother him. So, but he made some of the most important plays of the game with his legs. I mean, on the first touchdown drive for Alabama. Yeah, that, that scramble was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, went out to the right and looked like he was about to go down and then was able to elude a sack and run off to the left and pick up a first down. And that wasn't the only play he made, but that's... That one sustained a drive that resulted in a touchdown that was very, very important in the game. No, and I, I mean, the, the, I, I guess you know, I, I think, I think the uh, the thing I would say out of all of it is, if if the decisions that led to Alabama being in and then ultimately them winning, if this pushes us closer to an eighteen playoff, then then that's a good thing. I know there's not universal thought amongst college football fans that we need to do this. I do think there are people who will say, well, we're just going to argue about who the ninth best team is as opposed to the fifth best team, and it will never end. And, yes, that is true. We're always going to have something to argue about. But I would suspect that Pac-12 and Big Ten folks can't be very happy that they were left left off the table and, and did not have a seat at the table for the playoffs. So if this, if this pushes us to the, the five conference champions, two at-large bids, and maybe uh, a bid that could be at-large or Notre Dame or a group of five champion if they're ranked highly enough. And then you play the first four games at campus sites of the top four, so you retain an incentive 
you, you don't throw out the whole, the window the incentive of still being thought of as one of the four best teams. So so people can't say, well, you know, you diminish the importance of the regular season. So so you still maintain that incentive. Then you know, if what we all went through for the last few weeks and the debate and the arguing about it was pushing us to what I think would be the best thing for the sport, which is an eighteen playoff. And like I said, do the do the first four weeks or do the first week of games, the quarterfinals at campus sites, and then do it the way you have been doing it. We could do this for a hundred years, as far as I'm concerned, and I'd be just fine with. It. Well, our our guest, our ballsy guest now is Fox Sports Southwest and Fox Sports Net football play-by-play voice, Mark Follower. <laughs> Listen, listen, hat, so, hat on now. Do I need to take that hat off? I'm sorry. No, I think no, I think no. this is great. I think we should. We should. But you, you are John. Or how big a college football fan are you? Real big. Uh, I love the game. It's fantastic. You know, and I and I enjoy. I've been very fortunate that uh, for the last six years to get to do games for uh, for FSN and for FS1. That's been great. I did a uh, you know done a lot of Big Twelve games and got to do a Big Ten game this year for the first time, which was a great uh, great experience going to Nebraska for Iowa and Nebraska. The the Black Friday after Thanksgiving. So, you know, I, I love the game. I love the uniqueness of it. I always tell people, and, and pro football is great too, but if a, uh, if a spaceship came down and said, hey, follow Will, you only get to watch one kind of football for the remainder of your days on this planet, then I would choose watching college football over pro football. What, what if they, there's just, is that what they would sorry. tell us? If a spaceship came down, is that what they would want to know? Yes. Uh, well, probably not. It's but, a very sports-centric uh, planet. Come on. <laughs> What, what, it's an oblong-shaped okay. planet. Yeah, there you what go. What about? Well, be careful how you answer this. What about if they asked you if you could only do one sport? What would you pick? Oh God, yeah, that would be uh, man. That would be tough if uh, if the spaceship came down and and said that. But uh, I'd probably say I guess I better pick doing basketball. <laughs> yeah, you got, I think you better pick that. Yeah. Now listen, this is the the, the question because you're right to bring up the point that the fact that the, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten were not in the uh, Final Four is the reason why there'll be talk. I don't know that it's going to happen, uh, but there'll be talk about pushing to, to six or eight teams, which I, would mm-hmm. be fine with me. Uh, but the, I, I, the question I want to ask right now is, and, and kind of it's, it's part of that as well, is that Nick Saban has now won six national championships, five at Alabama and one at LSU. Um, I think that's right. Uh, You're right. So – is Nick Saban the you know in, in my mind what he's done is greater than what any coach has ever done in college football because it's in a much more difficult era now than it was in the days of Bear Bryant uh, when you could just load up and take all the recruits you wanted and there's the the eighty five that you know so the it's called champion yeah yes yes and, and, but but yes that's right but Thank but you. here's my question does this system in some ways enable Nick Saban to do those things in other words. They're they're getting picked to be uh, in the Final Four almost every year, uh, and then in the BCS as well. They're in the Final Two. So, does this system enable him to carry on this, or is it is he really what he's doing the the, the best that any football coach has ever done in college? Well, it's so hard to say that something's the best. Um... You know, because I think we have a proclivity right now in the times that we live in, and everything's in front of our face, and the social media area uh, era. I'm sorry to say that something's the best. So, as much respect as I have for it, only because off the top of my head, you know, I, I would want to like s- spend a little bit more time looking at some other past accomplishments. So I'm a little bit reticent to say it's the best. Not not that I wouldn't come to that conclusion if you gave me some more time to think about it and analyze the other things out there. I just don't want to fall victim to our 
like I said, our proclivity for what we do these days, which is just automatically say something's the best because it's the thing that's right there in front of us, and it's just the times that we live in, and we're we're prone to doing that. The other, um, as, as, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Mark. I want you to finish. I, I just wanted to say, as far as the idea that the system puts him in a position to do that. There is probably at least a little bit of merit to that thought process only because Alabama is always going to get the viewpoint of, well, it's Alabama. Whenever you come down to a debate of, are they somebody who should be included in the playoff this year, for example, or where should they be ranked, or how should we view their accomplishments because of the conference they play in and what they've done and what their competition is. You know, I do think in listening to one thing that I heard Saban say last night in one of his interviews that I think we sort of overlook in terms of the coaching job that he does. He was on ESPN last night after the game, and Van Pelt asked him about playing freshmen that he played last night. Oh. And he said, look, we, we have unique challenges. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. I don't think he used the term unique challenges, but clearly they do as a program, and that is that they move players along very quickly because there's so much talent there and guys declare for the draft and openings occur at positions and on the two deep um, a little bit more frequently than maybe they do in some other programs. And so they have to get those guys experience and there's a lot of roster turnover that you would see at Alabama that probably only happen at a select group of schools that are such uh, pro football factories, if you will, that produce players that you know get into the draft and will be drafted and will declare early for the draft. So there are things that he's doing there because the program is so good and because opportunities are generated for players there to move on to the next level that he he has to you know continue to recruit well and be able to develop young players and put them in a position to play in big moments like they did last night and did so successfully. I would add. Does anybody here know if the place kicker Andy? Papanastas. 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 Is he a scholarship player or a walk-on? I believe he was a walk-on. Why? That, my, my question is... He did, I, don't, I don't believe he had any other scholarship offer. Well, he, he, I think he's a transfer from Mississippi. Yeah, he, he transferred. He, he, yeah, he transferred. But my question is, aren't there enough good kickers? <laughs> Why aren't there kickers getting, place kickers getting college scholarships instead of a fifth-string linebacker? Is it, is it just me? I mean, there are. My, you know, my my opinion of it and my dealings with it is I see that kickers are on scholarship. I think what happens, though, you know, the, the, the transfer world and the limits of scholarship, that does, and the whole concept of preferred walk-ons yeah. and things like that, I, I think that the the depth of what goes on in terms of recruiting and walk-ons and construction of a roster and ways to still help players out, even if they're not necessarily on a quote-unquote full ride, I think probably, and I don't want to wade too far into something that I don't have complete working knowledge of, but at least That's some, what we do here, Mark. Some, yeah. some idea of it anyway. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to still fortify your roster, even if it's not the traditional means of, hey, here's your scholarship that's going to give you tuition, room, and board, and books, and meals, and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's that old thing, though, um, uh, and I've always said, especially as a punter goes, if i got a bad team, the first thing I'm going to go out is find me the best punter I could find to get me out of trouble, <laughs> you know. And and, uh, and that's like the Oklahoma's have got a guy that does both, punting and kicking. And I'm not saying he, he can't do that, uh, but it, you know, when you've got a great roster like Alabama has, like Oklahoma has, uh, I, don't, I don't think you should – 
you know, let that stop. Okay, now we got to our special teams. It's okay now. Now we don't have to uh, to, to do that anymore. You need to be getting the best players you can get wherever you can get them, and that includes, to me, kickers and punters. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I will say this: when when that kid kicked kicked that yesterday, before he kicked it, somebody went up to him on the sideline, an Alabama player went up to him and was just talking to him for like thirty seconds. And I and I told my daughter, I and, and my son, people should leave him alone. No one should be saying anything to him. Did your daughter agree sure. with you? Yes, they did. It was, it was like the worst thing that could happen. Never you, talked you, to the starting pitcher. Never talked yeah, to. Yeah, the, I, to I, the I've noticed that his daughter's football knowledge is increasing as this, <laughs> it uh, is, as this really. podcast goes Well, like, compared, compared to my compatriots here, it's really it's uh, really Was this Olivia? Contest. It's Olivia. Yeah. So can we have Olivia on next week instead of you? Actually, she's got to be back at school. You know, she's on the Palm Squad at Arkansas, so she fancies herself could, something could of an she expert kick? now. Could she kick for the Razorbacks? She probably could. Yeah, probably I, I saw the Razorbacks kick her, <laughs> and I heard him shank one this year. So, yeah, yeah, you yeah. could hear it, yeah. Uh, so, Mark, uh, is this exactly how you expected the podcast to go this morning? Um, I, I, I felt like that based on our uh, Twitter exchange last night that we would be talking about oh, this. Okay. But, uh, but, no, it's good. I, I, I enjoy that kind of a Would you like to talk a little Dallas Mavericks? Sure, fire away. We can do that. Well, we're at midseason, I'm informed. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Seth, games down, 41 to go. That is precisely and mathematically correct, Evan. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, Mark, what is give your state of the Dallas Mavericks. My state of it is probably no different than what I would have told you at the beginning of the season, which is it's a rebuilding year, and some of those things that they need to do are happening in terms of rebuilding, in terms of Dennis Smith Jr. probably being the top thing, getting the opportunity to play. And because they're still early in the life cycle of rebuilding, I know that one thing that's probably a, a point of contention amongst a lot of fans is that there are still players that are older on the roster, and I think everybody has to realize that this is not a one- or a two-year deal. It's a long-term project, and it's going to take some time to turn over the roster and to have years where you have enough first-round draft picks to be able to accumulate a lot of talent on your roster. I mean, you could jettison veterans, I suppose, but I don't necessarily think that that serves the young players that you're trying to bring along in their best interest if you turn it into a couple of first-round draft picks and G League All-Stars outside of that. So, you know, they're they're early on in the life cycle of their rebuilding. Some good things have happened this year that's been encouraging, and then some disappointing things have happened this year as well. And, you know, like I said, my state is, right now, my state of the Mavs is probably what I thought it would be at the start of the year. The, The single biggest development being how far ahead of schedule Dennis Smith Jr. appears to be? Uh, it's not that I necessarily think that he's that far ahead of schedule, just that things are progressing in the way that you would hope for a first-year player. It seems as the year has gone on that he certainly is making strides, but there are also times that you understand that this is a long-term thing for him because he just turned 20 years old. He didn't play a senior year of high school of basketball because of a serious knee injury and then only played one year of college ball, and he's learning point guard. And so he certainly seems like that he's surviving all of the bullets flying by, and there are things that are happening in his game that are positive, but then you realize there are going to be nights that it's still a really, really difficult proposition for him learning this league and being able to have success as a young point guard that's barely 20 years old. So, So it's not that I think it's ahead of schedule. I just think it's going as I would expect it, which is full of moments of incredible intrigue and full of 
sobering moments of reality of the difficulties that he faces. The good news, I think, is that Dennis Smith Jr. is what we thought he would be or what or Maverick fans hoped he would be. Uh, you, you know, Unlike Nerlens Noel. Who? Right. Yeah. So that's that's yeah absolutely that's that's a that's a plus that the guy was in, at least as good as it, you thought he was yeah be. and he would struggle so I, I think yeah. that I think that's good so we so we have Dennis Smith Jr. we have Harrison Barnes what are the other building blocks uh, for the starters are are on this roster none right um, for, for starters as in do you mean yeah, just I, I, for, for, for starting a conversation or starting caliber players for starting caliber players. Well, I don't know that there's a lot of other starting caliber players that are building blocks for the future, for the long-term future of the roster. I do like Kleba, uh, and I think that his play in the starting lineup has certainly demonstrated that he's a keeper. I think that if you're talking about a good team a few years down the road, then he is a backup energy player off the bench, ideally. However, I certainly think that him starting games and playing the 21 minutes per game as a starter that he's averaging allows you to start the first quarter and the third quarter with a bigger lineup and able to cover some of the things defensively that Dirk can't handle uh, at this stage of his career and put Barnes and Matthews in more traditional positions to start the beginning of games and the beginning of halves. And then you're able to adjust and pivot off of that as the matchups and the rest of the game unfolds. I think that's a good thing. So I like Kleba. I like Yogi. Yogi, to me, is certainly someone that I think has a long future as a backup guard who can come off the bench and score and theoretically play both positions, uh, even though he's undersized to play two guard, but depending on who you have in the backcourt with him, then I don't think there's any reason why he couldn't be an interchangeable bench backup piece as a guard and play either one of the guard spots and be able to um, be a, a scoring backup point guard if you need him to be or a run the team backup point guard if you need or a, you know a guy who competes really hard defensively and gets into people from that aspect of it so so I like I like those couple of things that you have there in terms of those guys coming off the bench and things that you're developing this year now I, I don't want to compare these guys to the Golden State Warriors but when when you're watching that game that's, that's very nice of you yeah it is way. very nice <laughs> of me to do that but when you're watching that game, you know there's a natural tendency that you, because of Steph Curry and what such an unbelievable shooter he is, and um, to watch that, and, and and of course that team's full of them, to think that oh yeah they're they're a three point shooting team and they're not, you know they they are a beautiful offensive machine, and 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 watching that game, what you notice uh, even as well as the Mavericks played in that game and and made a game out of that, and that was a lot of fun to watch, um, was that. Still, the Mavericks are essentially offensively a jump shooting team, and there were times when they would would get to the basket, but they just still reluctant to do that. And of course, the Warriors do. They go to the basket, they they pass, they they spread the floor, they they just do everything so well offensively. Is uh, and obviously Dennis Smith is the kind of guy who can facilitate that uh, transition to a team that will go to the basket. Do they still need to add uh, more parts like that? I'm not saying that you're going to get another guy like Dennis Smith, but, but more guys who are, are more varied in their offense. Well, it would certainly be very good going forward, and Barnes is filling this bill more than he was last year because his drives per game are up. And, and when we were talking about starting caliber players on the roster, I obviously neglected to mention him, but I don't necessarily view him in terms of the developmental phase. I mean, he's picked right. up where he left off last year and, and you know certainly is 
for as long as he's here for the foreseeable future, uh, uh, clearly a starting and significant piece of what they have going on. And he's better this year going to the basket and generating those opportunities. But, yeah, there's no doubt that this team needs a lot of things, and one of the things that they could use would be a wing player who slashes and goes to the basket. I, I, there's absolutely no doubt about having a player of that ability would be a big boost to this roster for sure. So if you were uh, – and, and, and it looks like there's a whole lot of people in competition for the, that number one pick – um, right. Uh, so if, if the Mavericks are a top five pick and, and this, uh, this draft class looks like it's pretty heavy in big men, big athletic guys, which they could certainly use. Um, do you think that that is the most important element they could add? The big player or the wing player? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, between those two, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I think a, 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 the big player, although I, I'm be in favor of that as well. Don't what, go out on a limb. Well, whatever you get. You don't, you well, you don't get player. a good big man. You yeah, but about him. I, I would probably lean towards saying the big guy as well, but you know, I think there's, there's a natural inclination for us to say that, well, that would be the harder thing to find. I was just reading an article about this this week about the draft, and the state of rosters around the league as we head towards the trade deadline. And one of the things that was pointed out is that we're kind of in a, in a unique time in the game right now where it seems like that the, the idea of the slashing 6-6-6-7 shooting guard, small forward, whatever you want to call it, the, the Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant type of player, there's, there's a little bit, uh, you know, that, that player doesn't, uh, we're not as deep at that particular position right. in the league right now based on some of the last few drafts and the guys that have come into the league. So maybe it's not as easy as we think these days to find really good wing players. And, and it's kind of evolved into um, big guys who either face up and, and are stretch fours or big guys who are very limited offensively and they're good defenders and good rebounders and the thing that they do on offense is get putbacks and you throw them lobs. There aren't very many back-to-the-basket bigs anymore. They do one of the two things that I spoke of. And then the perimeter players are all, um, you know, three-point shooting, uh, go to the basket, but they're a little bit smaller, more point guard type players when I think of perimeter players right now. So maybe there is some merit to the idea that we're sort of in a place in the game right now where the slashing wing player isn't as prevalent as it used to be, but it's still really important when you have someone with size that can do that. So I wouldn't dismiss the idea of going after a wing as well, depending on where they draft. But at this point, I would say, given what I've looked at and what the Mavs needs are, and what you assume that they would be after the dust settles from this season and going into the off season, that yeah, you would, you would, if you're drafting up high, you would have to think that one of the many talented bigs would be probably at this point your best way to go. You know, it's interesting, and we've talked about this before on the podcast with you about the the evolution of the NBA game and how it's changed. And I was reading something that Trey Young said the other day. You know, and he's a, a, the outstanding uh, Oklahoma point guard. And I think he's still leading the nation in scoring. At least he was the last time I looked. Um, which he said and was assist too, right? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, and and yeah. He, he's just terrific. And he's and he's drawn some comparisons to to Curry. And and yeah. uh, and he was saying that basically the game is now to shoot threes and drive to the basket. 
uh, offensively. And, and that just yes. and that's interesting to me that you know, of course the and, and that was when we talked about Harrison Barnes that he he was a, a great mid range shooter, but uh, the, the game just doesn't really call for that that much anymore. Uh, and either you got to get to the basket or you got to shoot the three. And that's just interesting to me that that it is it has evolved into this. Uh, and there's just and there's and that's just. The half of it, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's well, it's either. I mean, it's either you got to make a high percentage shot, or you got to take a, a. If you're going to take a lower percentage shot, it better be something that's going to get you a higher reward. I mean, that's right. That's just. I'm sure that's all analytics driven. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely it is. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, it's all analytics driven. I think the one thing though that I would add to the discussion, and this is my bias towards Dirk that's coming in right now, but I've actually heard Dirk speak about this particular aspect of the game as well. And that is that you still better be able to do some things and operate in the mid-range. Because at the end of the game, defenses are not going to let you go to the basket as easily as they might have over the course of the game. And teams are also going to guard you more closely at the three-point line and run you off opportunities to shoot threes. So you better be able to operate in other places on the floor besides the immediate area around the basket or the three-point line. And I thought that was an excellent point. And not that there's anything that I can point to research for you guys to prove that he's right, but listening to him say it and the conviction with which Dirk says it and the success that he's had operating that area in his career, I certainly think it sounds to me like there's a lot of merit to that thought process. And anecdotally, that was the, as I recall, if I'm not running my games together here, that's what Harrison Barnes did at the end of that Golden State game. He came down and got the shot. Uh, I think he was in the lane, but it was it was uh, you know uh, a mid range shot. It was a good shot, and they got him in a point where you know. Yeah, well, there were there were two shots, Kevin. As a matter of fact, so they were down by two, and the first shot that he had to tie the game was a Dennis Smith Jr. drive to the basket yeah. and went to Barnes in the corner, and someone chased him off the three point line, and he put the ball down and pulled up at the elbow. His yeah. second tying shot was gave him the ball at the top of the key had a smaller player on him, and was able to put the ball down, spin, drive to the basket, and, and score, in essence, what amounted to a layup at that point. But the first of his two shots was an open jumper from the elbow that he looked completely comfortable taking. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's at least one anecdotal bit of evidence that would indicate that, yeah, there's still certainly a need for comfort level operating in mid-range basketball. Yeah. You know, I'm glad Kevin brought up Trey Young because I, w- I wanted to bring him up because I'm fascinated by him. I really like his game. If he is the best player available on the draft board when the Mavericks <laughs> pick, is he a player you would take? That's a great question, and I actually had a discussion about this the other day with someone. And knowing Rick's desire to have multiple playmakers on the floor and understanding that if you look at him and you think, gosh, this guy is the next Steph Curry, and seeing what he does for the geometry of the game and opening things up and the amount of success that he's had and how revolutionary he's been to the game – I mean, it all depends on what you evaluate him as and what your scouts view him as. But if your scouts view him as that kind of player, I think it would be really tough to pass on him, even even if it, it seems like that there's a redundancy to what you have. Well, would um, Dennis you know, Smith would be? I, I think Dennis Smith would be a fine you know, too. I mean, I'm no, sorry, I got no problem with Dennis Smith being a two. Yeah, no, the, that yeah, but the, but you're not going for the big man. You're passing up the yeah, you're but sli- you're slashing. This always goes right. back to the Kevin Durant, Greg Oden 
question. And I remember when people were asking that question, oh, which one you take? And, and, I, and I always said Durant because he's the finished product, you know. And I had no idea there would be this distance between the two of them, obviously. Sure. But, but I, I just felt like this, everybody wanted They don't want it as much anymore. People don't want that. I think that was the, the, the line of demarcation between you don't take that big lumbering big man right anymore. well it's a different game it's a different game and you and you take you take the player more but yeah i agree you know this is one of those things you would never if he is the next steph curry you would never be able to defend yourself 10 years from now by saying well we needed a big man i mean the, the only people who ever been able to do that of course it depends on the big man that you well the, when the rockets got a kim olajuwon instead of michael jordan every no, no one no one questions yeah. that that draft pick Although, I think if you really looked at it, who would you have rather had, Akeem or, or Michael Jordan? Well, I think to, to Barry's question, look, and, and, and I stand by what I said earlier, that I think this, this roster clearly needs a talented, skilled big man. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Right. They're if so you're telling rare. me that, where, that, that the best bigs have been passed on when they've picked, and if you're telling me that the scouts have a high enough opinion of Trey Young, I mean, to me it's all based on – what sure. he looks like whenever you know you get down to the real draft scouting and grading process. But to me, I don't think that there's any reason to say at at on on January the eighth or ninth or whatever January the ninth. I guess there's no reason for me to sit here and say no. I, I would not uh, at this point just completely reject the idea of drafting Trey Young if he's the kind of player that we were discussing the idea of him being and he's there for you, and the big guys are gone, or the big guy you don't like you know, is, is sitting there, and the big guys you do like are already gone, um, and, and you have the right kind of grade on him and see the right kind of ceiling and that sort of thing, and, and knowing what Rick likes, I wouldn't have a problem with him going after that. The, whatever redundancy exists there I think would certainly be something that would be a potential workaround going forward. Mark, I want to move things off the, <clears throat> off the court of play just a little bit and, and ask you about uh, Saturday night and uh, the uh, the raising of the jersey of Derek Harper Sunday it was Sunday night uh, yeah. to to the rafters and uh, your partner obviously what did that whole ceremony from from your perspective and, and as a guy who doesn't seem to really want a whole lot of attention directed his way what did you see from Harp in in how he received that whole thing oh it was really cool because you're right he doesn't want a whole lot of attention directed his way and kept on saying over and over again on Sunday how overwhelming it was in our private moments when we're getting ready to do the open for the telecast or um, you know at a break or early in the game and when we're getting ready to roll out another uh, video piece or video package about something in his career overwhelming because of the people that were there the childhood friends the family the former teammates the congratulations, the attention from Maverick players, from Knicks players, from Knicks staff, from people that he knew going all the way back to his time with New York, by the way, in the 90s and playing on the, on the 1994 NBA Finals team with New York. So, so those, or that word overwhelming was something that he used a lot. Um, and, and just the fact that he was very honest in the you know, three weeks after we announced the official date and him saying, look, I was going to try to act like this was all easy and cool and, and play it off like it's no big deal, but obviously it's a really big deal, and I'm excited about it and grateful for the fact that it's happened. So he was uh, very appreciative of all the love shown him in the days and hours leading up to it, and I think it means 
um, you know, uh, obviously a great deal to him to have his contribution to the franchise be recognized in the most long-lasting way that it can possibly be recognized when, when your number is going to hang in the Raptors forever. Dirk will, I, I think we all feel like Dirk is certainly going to be have his jersey retired very shortly after he uh, He's got to take it off first. It. Yeah, I know. Um, will there be anybody between now and then? Well, that's a good question. And since that's a decision for a committee of one, um, you know, I I don't really have much of a feel or much of an answer for it. I I think anything's possible. Um, and the longer Dirk plays, maybe that leaves open the window to do something else. I guess the only thing I could say to that is that, as history would show us, it's been 17 years since Mark retired at Jersey, and he, of course, being the committee of one. Right. And I don't even remember at the time had the Mavs already decided they were retiring Rose Jersey, and then it was you know had that already been decided in the early part of the ninety nine two thousand season, and then in January of two thousand Mark bought the team, and then in March of two thousand the decision was made to retire Rose Jersey. I don't remember what the, the timeline of the decision making process was then. So is this the first jersey that Mark had officially decided himself that was going to be retired and ultimately put the whole plan of action into motion to to have the ceremony and get it done? I'm not sure on that. But well, I guess history tells us that uh, he he uh, feels like there's not uh, you know um, something that you need to be doing every year, having a jersey retirement ceremony. So yeah. uh, I, I don't really have much of a feel for it other than just his own personal history in terms of what's happened with the franchise over – over 18 years now, just passing the 18-year anniversary of his ownership. And if you were to ask me to guess, I would doubt very seriously that anything else happens, but I could be completely wrong on that. Well, let me throw out a name here, Mark Aguirre. I think his jersey should be retired. I was here in in, in those days. You were here when they first hung up the peach baskets. I was. But but I missed missed the first season, but, but I was here for the second season, and I've been here since. And I, I know there's a lot. There'd be a lot of negativity involved uh, if, if if his jersey got retired. But I think his contribution to the franchise. I think he's. I think he's just certainly in a league with all the guys who have their jerseys. Yeah, I, I know the attitude yeah. in the off off court and right. Of course, but, yeah. but 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 I really think it's 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 be- obviously a very very intriguing debate. Um, and I think that that you know your your colleague Brad Townsend wrote very eloquently about it over the weekend and and that aspect of it. And I think one of the things that made Brad's writing about it this weekend that was so intriguing was the quotes from Roe and Derek themselves about Mark. And what makes the debate so interesting is both of those guys. And and I and I had a conversation about Harp with this, and I don't think that I would be speaking out of turn to say this about something we discussed off the air. And, and Derek was talking about Mark and his contribution, and he said, "Look, he was a he obviously was a better player than me." And and Rowan Derek certainly are the first to point to uh, in those quotes. You see them speak glowingly of his on court contributions. But also, as highly as they speak of his on-court contributions, it's not like they were ignoring the fact that there were some off-the-court distractions. And they didn't speak, um, you know, with with uh, venom or a lot of negativity about it. But they even recognized that he was a great player and he was integral to their success. But but they didn't exactly completely sweep under the rug that there were the other things there. So I think that even when his own teammates recognize he was an extraordinary player 
but they can't do it even all of these years after the fact without at least having to make a concession to the other things that go on. And, and like I said, I, I think clearly if you read the story, they were not doing it in a venomous, mean, hateful, bitter, I'm still carrying a grudge kind of way. They're just being honest about the fact that uh, he was an enigmatic personality and a misunderstood personality, I think, was one of the misunderstood, one of the most misunderstood people he's ever been around, I think, was, as a matter of fact, a direct quote from Derek about it. So I think that just gives you a little bit of an insight to all of the things that would be in play with that decision. And, you know, it's, it's one that I'm sure that Mark has thought about and wrestled with and is open to input about, and I don't think that the door is shut on it, but clearly I think it's still something that is by no means decided yay or nay if it's going to happen one of these days. You know, what stay are the, tuned, as we would say in TV, I guess. Yeah. What, what are the things about, uh, about Derek Harper that, that, you, that I loved as a player watching him? Was he was such a great two-way player. Uh, great mm-hmm. defensively, a great uh, a point guard as well. Uh, and and here's the thing about that: uh, it's certainly deserving to have his uh, jersey race at the Raptors. I, I applauded that. Uh, and yet, in the short history of the Dallas Mavericks, he is the third best point guard. Uh, and I think that really says something about the fact that this organization has, uh, in such a short time, had such great point guards. Uh, right. Uh, to go, you, you've got also got Steve Nash, uh, who was not here. Yeah, I'm assuming you're meaning Jason Kidd. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. And and that uh, you have uh, one guy's a Hall of Famer and the other guy's going to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, and and that's that's really remarkable to me that this organization has been able to, to do that. And kind of going to your point about uh, Rick Carlisle wanting you know to pile up as many you know playmakers as he can get. Um, I think it I think it speaks to that. I mean, what other organization has had in the last thirty years three point guards of that caliber? And, and not all, obviously, at the same time. But they, sure. I, I, sure. I, I, just, well, you know, I just don't know. I would go when, I, when I look at the contributions of those players, I guess the one thing that, that sets them apart is that, that in, and, and obviously Kid won a championship here and certainly had great years here, but his best years right. uh, as a player and as an MVP caliber player were experienced with the Nets. Right. And really good years in Phoenix, too, by the way. And Nash's best years were obviously in Phoenix. Right. Uh, very, very good years here. And I guess that's the one thing that separates Derek from Nash and Kidd right. is that Nash and Kidd have these overall bigger career bullet points. Um, you know, the the numbers for Derek in his time with Dallas probably stack up a little bit differently as as opposed to Kidd and Nash. Longevity had something to do with that. And, and you know, Kidd going to All-Star games and Nash going to All-Star games while playing with the Mavericks would be a leg up over Derek that, that he didn't have. Um, but I think the other thing that was interesting to me in doing research to get ready for, you know, what I wanted to say about Derek at the beginning of our of our ceremony on Sunday night is that if you had told me this beforehand, I would I would have been very surprised by it. And that is, and I, and I think probably other people I would assume are as well. But when Derek retired in 1999, uh, he was top 12 in NBA history, and I think the highest category was seventh, and the lowest was twelfth. And these four things: assists, steals, games played, and three pointers made. Um, you know, the guy when when he stepped away in 1999, um, and I and I think he's still third or fourth in NBA history in most points scored without having made an All Star game, fourth or fifth, something like somewhere somewhere along in there. But when he stepped away from the game in 1999, I mean, the dude had had a hell of a career and was really, really high up the food chain and up the statistical ladder 
in a lot of categories. And, you know, that to me was impressive in terms of looking back at his career and getting ready for, you know, the the things that I wanted to say about him at our ceremony on Sunday night. Mark, thanks thanks so much for being on our, our Mark Mount Rushmore of Mavericks. Because we, we talked a lot about Marks today. We had Mark Cuban, yeah. Mark Aguirre, Mark Fowler. Yeah. Who's number four? Wow. <laughs> Surely there's uh, there's got to be a third before you get to no 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 so you, fu- so you're on, well thanks so much for being with us uh, thanks for finally finding the time we've we've tried to have you on all throughout the cowboy season but uh, we we enjoyed this tremendously and we'll have to have you back uh, again very soon anytime pleasure to talk to you guys as always and all the best and Mark thanks thanks Mark there goes Mark follow well. you guys bye Mark right. bye Mark all right take care guys see ya. Uh, a, a great guy, obviously, uh, but also very a knowledgeable. Sports fan, a, a big sports fan. Yeah, he has he. You know, he loves. He's always disappointed when it's just me and you on the podcast, and Evan's not here because he wants to talk about the Rangers. Like, like we couldn't talk. We about did. The we didn't talk. We had no time to talk about. Yeah, the we Rangers. had no time to talk about the Rangers. We, we certainly had time to talk about college football, and maybe we could talk to David Moore, who's coming up on our next podcast. About college football no, as well. No, let's not do Just that. Cowboys? Yeah. Go yeah. Cowboys. Go what, what would he say? He would, talk, he would want to talk about UNT. That's all he would, that's all he would talk about. Wow. Well, they had an improved season. I'll just say that. <laughs> they did have an improved season. They got, so, a, good, they got a good head coach who the, may not be there very long. At the bowl game. He's so going. good. Oh, well, you know. Evan, will you take us out? Oh. Um, well, look, you woke him up. Okay. <laughs> well, everybody, this has been a fine podcast. Thank <laughs> you for joining us. <laughs> He slept in the second half of it. No, I'm trying to figure out who are the four voters who voted UCF number one in the AP poll. My guess number is they all. Florida. I'm guessing they're from Florida. Or maybe there might be in Nebraska. Don't don't. Uh, could there be. might be somebody from Nebraska. I, I've looked at the guys that I realized were definitely Florida, like Pat Dooley, and he did not vote for uh, for Florida number for UCF number one. Is I just, George Diaz a voter? George Diaz is not a voter this year. I just we'll we'll end this podcast by saying this. You know, congratulations again to UCF. Stop making a joke of this whole thing, okay? Wow. Just stop making a joke of it. You won 14 games. You went undefeated. You weren't in the playoffs. This thing has gotten out of hand. I know it's all brand building for them. Brando building. But enough. Enough. This, the governor of the state of Florida, where, where not enough wacky stuff happens, <laughs> yesterday took time to issue a proclamation declaring UCF the national champions in Florida. You know, back Who in- is the governor of the state of Florida? Rick Scott. And didn't he used to work here in Dallas? Did, didn't he run hospitals here in Dallas? I believe he the did. The governor of Florida? Yes. I have really? no idea. Yes. But I it's no it, don't you come on. It's stupid. Uh yeah, it is, but you know, this is it's this sophomore. Is, but, but here's the thing. This is as close as they're ever going to get. When are, when are they going to go undefeated again? Can they, Never. Well, maybe when they get to the Big 12. Yeah. Uh, no, that's never going to happen either. You know, what's going to happen is before the Big 12 ever adds on, that you will have the, the great seismic shift in college football, and there will be four super conferences. Four. Yeah. So four 14s? You, you, the four 14s? Four 16? Yeah. So what do, you th- what do you think? There'll be a merger between the Big 12 and the Pac-12? Uh, well, I, no, I don't think it will exactly be a merger. I, I think teams will go where they want to go. Texas will go where it wants to go. You know, and Oklahoma will go where it the, wants to go. Clemson or North Carolina 
and Oklahoma will end up in the SEC. One of those. Two. That, yeah. that will be the two. The, uh, te- uh, Texas would not want to go to the SEC. It would, Texas, rather, it would rather go to the Big Ten or the Pac-12. With A&M in the SEC, that won't happen because these two schools have to have a slappy fight. Yeah, well, Texas, is, Texas I, I think, used to want to go Pac-12, but now I think uh, the, uh, the pendulum has swung over to the Big Ten now. They feel they're more like it. That's a more like institutions. There. Oh, because of the great academics in the Big Ten. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Says the Northwest. Tier one. Guy. Yeah. Tier one. Um, all right. Well, let's get on to Cowboys. Uh, let's get to David Moore. David Moore. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll call him. We'll go through the intro again so that we can listen to that because um, that's fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. We'll see you in just a few minutes. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe via iTunes. You'll get new episodes every week. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, sports fans, see ya.